0: Well, I want to talk about, uh, well, let me bring you, remind, you, remind you where we are. We are, on a, in our course outline, Roman numeral two, D, the literary form of the Gospels. And uh, number one under that is that the Gospels are stories, and as such, they have, in, involve conflict and resolution of conflict. Uh, other people besides me, uh, in literary studies primarily, have drawn up, admittedly oversimplified ways of analyzing this. But still useful, I think, just because they enable us to think about how stories go forward. Uh, and one of your handouts has this, the one with uh, that says common rhetorical subdivisions in narrative episodes. I would like to. both define these categories and illustrate them at the same time. Now that may be a little dangerous, uh, but if you turn over that same handout to the third page and you see an outline there with a tree kind of thing, then that will be our illustration. So Luke 6, 6 to 11, it came to pass on another Sabbath that he went into the synagogue and taught. Now, that I label, well, that's not the end of the setting. Uh, but you see on the right-hand side that's labeled setting. And the other part of the setting, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. The man being there, he is not doing anything. That is not an action. He, uh, when it says Jesus went into the synagogue and taught, you can say, well, that is actually an action. He went somewhere. But the action of going somewhere in order to arrive on the scene is the sort of exception that proves the rule here, because the basically the, the, the main function of that in the narrative is to introduce the scene and to get the characters on the scene. So even though you could classify that as a separate incident, because it's an action rather than a state. I've classified it as a setting. And frequently you'll find stories in the Gospels introduced that way. Jesus comes to a new location, sometimes with his disciples. So the setting, look at the definition back on page one. It's a statement about facts, location, time, circumstances, or movement to location. That's the one thing that's not uh, just a, a static fact. Then you have sometimes preliminary incidents. They are events that are relevant to what follows, so they wouldn't be mentioned at all, but before the chief problem or tension has been introduced into the episode. You think of a fairy story like Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, and Snow White and the Seven Dwarves are there and having a happy time, and the dwarves are going off to the mine. Everything is peaceful, you see. That's already that's preliminary incidents that that help to show who the characters are, but nothing's happened. It's when the wicked queen or whatever, you know, when she starts the plot in motion and plots against Snow White, then that's the occasioning incident, okay? So, verse 7, uh, the, the scribes and the Pharisees were watching him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find uh, something to, about which to accuse him. That already introduces the tension, right? Because they are out to get him, and we're going to see then what happens. Uh, Verse 8, he knew their thoughts and he said to the man with the withered hand, rise and stand in the middle. And he rose and stood. Now that's an action on Jesus' part, right? uh, Calling the man, I why did I group that all together? Jesus is the actor, right? There are several sort of mini events within that, but Jesus is the actor in all of them. And and as the action switches from one actor to another, you get some of the main things that develop in a story. That is in a single episode. This is a single episode, of course. What's happening here in terms of the, the tension in the plot? Well, it makes it worse. Why? Because Jesus, you know, hypothetically, you could say, well, Jesus could just ignore this man and sort of, you know, go his way. Though that's not, I realize it's not like Jesus as a character. But instead... He calls the man forward. Well, this, you see, results in a crisis, right? That, that now that the, the question is put, at least by a Jesus' action, and by the presence of the man in a, in a spot where everybody can see him. So that's complication. Complication is increasing the tension, right? So in the case of something like Snow White, it would basically be things in the development where where the, the, the queen, you know, she transforms herself into a witch to disguise herself and she makes this apple and so on. So it's getting worse at that point. You know that she's out to get snow white, but, but at this point you can see that things are getting more and more threatening. Verse 9, Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it permitted on the Sabbath to do, or to do harm, to save life, or to destroy it? What's that? That's also complication because now... Verbally, he's made the point. Right? He, you know, the thing is introduced by the man coming forward. Now he poses the question to those uh, to his opponents. Verse 10, and looking around on them all, he said, "Stretch out your hand." Now, there's two ways of looking at this. One is to say this resolves everything because it's a foregone conclusion that the man will be healed, although. Technically, if you think about it, you don't know uh, whether the stretching out, of course, his hand is withered, so evidently he can't stretch it out, but it's a little unclear exactly, is this the command to be healed or not? It is, as it turns out. But even if it were more clear than it is, that this is the command that's going to lead to his healing, From the standpoint of the audience, the tension is still there and it's worse than ever. What if the man's arm is not healed? Then Jesus would be shown up to be a fake. You see, he's really put himself on the line here in terms of what's going to happen. So, in terms of the the audience looking on, the tension is maximal. The climax, then, is that part of a narrative episode where the tension becomes greatest. And and the, the labels now... Of course, they're not this significant thing. It's to think about what's going on, especially in terms of conflict. And if you have one of these classic melodramas, you know, then the organ music gets loud and and uh, uh, tremulous, and uh, so you're you're hitting the time that is most tense. All right, then, and he did so, and his hand was restored. Now, that's the resolution. Why? Because. His problem is solved, right? Jesus is vindicated. All's at peace, or is it? <laughs> it isn't all at peace because far from being at peace with this, the scribes and the Pharisees, verse eleven, they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. So this is not a thing where you know they live happy ever after, <laughs> where Snow White the prince comes and and you know she's awakened. That it's a thoroughgoing resolution and that. I forget the plot now the Queen is destroyed yeah she she's (laughs) anyway so the evil is taken care of and good wins and everything is at peace again here there is a partial resolution right there's a resolution as far as the man is concerned but the ongoing problem with the Pharisees and the scribes is made worse if anything by this episode which is to say that these categories are too simple to deal with what goes on in the gospels because in the gospels we not only have individual episodes where there is a sort of resolution typically but we also have the whole of the gospel and the fact is that through the whole of the gospel that this underlying tension continues in the background but in terms of this kind of thing it is an additional incident it doesn't help to further resolve or untie things but is a comment about something else now actually the comments The additional incidents for some of the other episodes are not necessarily negative. Some of them are, and the crowd praised God when they saw what had happened. So take a look back at the categories. I've got additional incidents. It's a further incident that is a consequence of the climax of resolution, but is not a significant part of the climax of resolution itself. It does not undo the tension that is built up. Then there is commentary, and commentary contains the narrator's comments on evaluation of or moral for the story, you know, like these Aesop fables, right? They'll have some conclusion, and then the moral of the story is, right? Well, the story is over, but if the the narrator makes an additional comment, that is often very significant, of course, because he's telling you how he wants the story evaluated. Typically, the gospel writers do not do that, although on occasion they do although not always at the end. Take a look at at Luke 18.1, for example. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Now, that's Luke's comment, right? Nobody else is saying that, although it's at the beginning of the parable rather than the end. Okay, look at Luke 16. There's a story that Jesus tells. Now, we've dealt with miracle stories, but there are also stories that Jesus himself tells, parables, right? And you can apply this kind of category to them. Uh, Jesus tells a story about this uh, steward and and the rich man whose estate he's managing and he's uh, thrown out of the stewardship. Uh, Verse 8, The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. Now even though that's third person, it sounds like that's still an element of the story. But then, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. That's Jesus' own comment, right? It's no longer part of the story. That would be what I call commentary. Now, why go into this? Well. And some of you may have met this uh, in, briefly in the hermeneutics course, and you'll have to bear with me on this. But there are, there are several reasons for my introducing it. One is simply that it forces us to ask questions. What's going on? Where's the tension? Where's the tension resolved? Are there several strands of tension? Right? Because, in fact, there's the issue of this man with a withered hand being healed, but then there's also the issue of are the scribes and the Pharisees satisfied after Jesus has healed them, right? So there's two elements of tension. One is resolved, the other is not resolved. Another thing is that typically in stories, the main point will come at certain points. In commentary, for example, that's the obvious one, right? Because if, if a narrator wants to explicitly make a point, he'll make it there. So those are always key things to look at if they exist. Often, as I say in the Gospels, they do not exist. I thought of another one. Luke 15. They're mostly in parables. And not always does Jesus interpret the parables. But look at Luke 15, 3, the parable of the lost sheep. Verse 7, I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. That's not the story. It's no longer sheep and a shepherd, right? But it's Lost centers and so on, really gives you an interpretation of the story. So very key element, the commentary, if it exists. Another thing to watch for I mean starting from the end then, is additional incidents. Additional incidents are sort of throwaway in the sense of the story feels complete, even without them. But precisely because it's complete, if you add something else, there often is some special point, although it may be hard to discern. For instance, with this one with a man with a withered hand, the additional incident is this thing about the scribes and the Pharisees plotting against Jesus. Why is that significant? Because it's gonna crop up, and it's leading forward in the end to the crucifixion. Right? It's this undercurrent that Luke wants to make sure you understand. Another thing that crops up, I mentioned, was the people praising God. That, I suspect, is to make you think about, well, what should your response be? What should you be thinking of, you see, as now a more distant observer of the same event? So, again, it's significant that these things are included when the story appears to be complete without them. The resolution is, I think, the most key thing in terms of saying, It's something, of course, that's almost always there, right? And that brings uh, with it the main point of the story. Although to understand what's resolved, what's resolved is also the thing often that crops up with the occasioning incident and with the climax. So those two are important, but on the way to the resolution. So I'm saying look particularly at those things. I think it's probably something... Of a universal, even across cultures, that people instinctively feel—even they don't reflect consciously. Obviously, they don't have a scheme consciously worked out in them, but they instinctively have a feel for stories, and are looking for where the story is headed. You see, so that's something for you to look for too. And of course, you do it more explicitly now. We've got um, some more sheets you can see. And I've got some uh, passages that we could actually use and work with uh, if we are going to um, you know, analyze more passages in the same way. I've got three different passages. And uh, I suspect that I will leave that I think it's a useful kind of thing to develop, and maybe later on in the course we'll come back to that and then and do this. What I wanted to do at this point is mainly expose you to the thing, and I, I don't have the transparency there to, to work with anyway. And uh, I sort of suspect that you could begin to do this maybe you know, with a little bit of hesitancy and uh, doubts uh, with respect to some of the... Uh, passages that you yourself will be working on. I'm not saying you have to have it in your paper, right? But I'm saying think about what's going on in terms of plot. So I will leave it at that point. And that is going to be, if you're following in the course outline, point one. Well, it's more than point one, isn't it? It's also point three, the use of rhetorical analysis at a low level, a particular level or episode level. But two was, essentially, that the Gospels are stories leading somewhere. So now I want you to take a look at the structure of Luke as contained in this series of outlines. It's distinct because it looks like it was done on a typewriter, which, indeed, it was. It was done years ago, before uh, the advent, even, of of my personal computer. So uh, uh, it begins with a tentative outline of Matthew, But rather than starting there, I want you to turn over to Luke. And we're going to just run through this. This is not definitive. I did it trying to look for linguistic clues as well as thinking of these plot things. But obviously, that's not the only thing you can look for. And the Gospels are complex enough that this is not going to capture everything. But here's what we have. For Luke, we have the prologue, which we. Read through uh, last time, and as I said, that's distinct not only because it's not it's its narrator's comment, uh, but also because it it uh, indicates the purpose and background of Luke's writing. Uh, The Greek even is a more elegant and um, sort of uh, high literary style than the rest, so it really is distinct. And then you've got, of course the body of the material, the rest of the the book. How do you divide up the body? Well, I divided it in terms of this plot structure, which, again, is not the only way of doing it, but at least one way. A preliminary section consisting of Jesus' birth, boyhood, and preparation for public ministry. And then, Roman numeral two, the Galilean ministry, beginning with... The occasioning moment, the rejection at Nazareth, and things really become tense already at that point. Although you can argue that the temptation in chapter four is already the introduction of tension, but it's introduction of tension at the at the uh, sort of uh, superpower level, right, with the demonic realm. So it's a little, little bit different than uh, the human tensions, which. Uh, are the focus for most of the rest of the gospel, which is why I still chose um, uh, the uh, Incident Nazareth as to call that the occasioning incident. So you can see that and it's starred because I think it is also, there is some degree of prominence or emphasis on that. It's positioned at the beginning, even though it isn't as we saw, it isn't the very first thing that Jesus did in his public ministry. It's the first thing that Luke talks about with any extensive uh, discussion and exposition. Uh, look at the preliminary incident. You see I've broken that up, and most of that is in terms of obvious boundaries between episodes and obvious topical grouping because it goes back and forth between things happening with John the Baptist and Zechariah and Elizabeth and then things happening with Mary and Joseph and, and uh, Jesus being born. Uh, a comparison back and forth between John and Jesus in which Jesus is the greater of the two so that gives prominence you see to uh, the uh, the birth of Jesus and then John's ministry comes in chapter 3 and the baptism of Jesus is a key incident or episode in that because of the way in which it speaks of Jesus whole role and sets up the understanding of his ministry which is to come so you can see how I'm trying to reckon with what Luke is doing with these things. Okay, then, basically, uh, how do I divide up Jesus' Galilean ministry, and why do I uh, end it where I do? Well, 9.51, many uh, commentators recognize as a key transition, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And now we've got a long, long section where he is headed in the general direction of Jerusalem, but... But uh, at first, it's kind of vague exactly where he is. But in the end, he actually does get to Jerusalem. So that's significant because it orients that whole part of his ministry as on the way to the crucifixion, you see. Very explicitly, in effect, by the way in which it it groups the material together. So uh, that seemed to be, uh, to me, along with many commentators, to be uh, a very decisive transition at uh, 950. Then within that, what did I do? Well, again, I looked for uh, plot and tension elements, but also any kind of topical groupings that I could see. Uh, And, um, well, not with Luke so much. Uh, Some of the other Gospels I use specific transitions in place and in time. But that, it turns out, I think was not quite so helpful in Luke as in other cases. So then we get early ministry at Capernaum, and then actually one of the other things I use to separate is there are programmatic statements from time to time, actually, in all three synoptic gospels. Let me show you one. In chapter 4, 42 to 44, I'll read it for you so you can see. At daybreak, Jesus went to a solitary place. People were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues, plural, of Judea, a whole area. So you're covering a large amount of ground by way of summary, even though it starts out with what looks like it might be a a single episode yet it ends up summarizing what's happening. So that those summary statements are often at the end of sections. And you can see I've got another section beginning with 5.1 all the way to, to 9. And I've tried to group together two miracles, two controversies, two offenses in, in the uh, 5.1 to 6.11. And then uh, there is a Sermon on the Plain, which is a rather long section, which uh, is a distinct uh, piece in chapter 6. And then again, uh, some material grouped together, two miracles, two offenses, that is, offending the religious leaders. Uh, and another summary statement, eight one to 3 take, take a look at this one. We won't read all of them. But I'm trying to see how the story develops and how to group things together. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another proclaiming good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. See, this is not an episode. right? It is saying what is going on in a whole uh, period, uh, fairly general statement about what's going on. Uh, Parables and miracles in that section. And then, beginning in 951, if you look over to there, I've got the journey to Jerusalem, you can see. The teaching in the midst of the journey, all the way through eighteen thirty four it was hard for me to be uh, honest to see how this material fit together. but there seemed to be an oscillation between material teaching material that was addressed primarily to outsiders and primarily then to the disciples. so you can see some of that is labeling saying to the crowd, saying to the disciples, and back and forth and then uh, uh, page 6 of the Luke outline, the end of Jesus' journey, polarization, intensification of operation, opposition, here you begin to get place locations that indicate you're getting toward Jerusalem. They go, he goes from Jericho to the temple. There are controversies in the temple. And then uh, the uh, passion narrative proper beginning with 22, chapter 22, verse 1. Okay. Then uh, take a look at the structure of Mark next. And uh, I won't go through all of these in detail, but to tell you a little bit what I was looking for and, uh, and uh, the groupings that came out of that. The title is very distinctive, not a, a separate episode. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, 1-1. And then a preliminary section with... Uh, episodes, uh, the baptism of John, the temptation, very short uh, incident, uh, very short exposition of the temptation. And then the occasioning section, I called it, where you begin to get conflicts on a human level. And uh, then the later sections from 135 on, oh, you can see 132 to 34, is again the end of a section in my reckoning, and it's again one of these summary statements. And I think there's some justification in thinking that these summary statements mark a break because it pulls you back from the specifics, right? You're looking at more general. It's a natural kind of thing to use uh, as a transition. So 32. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. So it's not one episode, but you know, a whole series of healings uh, that are indicated. Now there's a notation here. You see that T-L set? T means temporal, L means location, set means setting. There's specific notes at various points of, now this is a new setting, either in location or either temporally. I'm watching for those things too. All right, then I've uh, got the section from chapter one to uh, the end of five, or nearly the end of five. And in Mark, Mark uses historical presence sometime. And he uses them, I think, my own study of it, convinced me that he uses them to lead up to some one incident one act, which is not itself in historical present, but which is the climax toward which he's going. And by using historical presence up to that point, he puts extra spotlight on that. So I think there is some emphasis given there, and I've tempted to use that as a significant clue. Now, the climax of this section comes with the raising of Jairus' daughter, which is a very impressive miracle in and of itself. But it turns out there's a whole bunch of historical presence leading up to the fact when she's actually raised. And that's, I believe, in Eris. Then we have a second section. uh, The crucifixion looms up. He's rejected at Nazareth. The disciples misunderstand. uh, And uh, there's a lot of uh, incidents of blindness here. And the disciples, uh, it's remarked how they lack faith. Uh, Well, I won't go through the details, but basically uh, I'm I'm looking at some of the linguistic clues as well as, uh, of course, the content of Mark. Uh, Next, Matthew. Matthew, many commentators, well, they've gone one of two ways. Either they have a threefold division based on a transition phrase uh, now I forget what that phrase is. We're a five-fold division. The five-fold division seems to me to be the most obvious because it breaks Matthew into teaching blocks and action blocks. Uh, and that's the way I have organized things here. Uh, there's preparations for Jesus' ministry, uh, the uh, early birth and early life, Don's ministry, then the first public ministry beginning in chapter 4, verse 12. All right, and then a teaching block, right? There's been action up to that point. Then the Sermon on the Mount, three chapters long, is a a significant block of teaching. Then chapters eight and nine, you can see that uh, three healings, and then a general statement about healing, uh, works of power, forgiveness of sinners, three more healings. Then chapter 10, begins another teaching block. This is Roman numeral 5. You see where I am? This is about sending out the disciples on a mission. Then chapter 11, we go back to action, uh, although with an important focus on wisdom and folly in the way in in which people are responding to Christ's ministry. And then chapter 13 is another teaching block, Jesus' parables or at least a block of parables. There are some more parables later on, but this is the main block of parables. Then Roman numeral eight, another action block, 13 to 17. Then teaching in verse chapter 18, Roman numeral nine, uh, focusing on shepherding and church issues, although the word church is not used. Basically, it's issues of relating to other disciples primarily. Reconciliation with people, for instance, who need uh, uh, for, to be forgiven and need to repent. Then Roman numeral 10, another action block, uh, in, uh, chapters 19 to 21, where there are, uh, there are a lot of, actually there are controversies, but it's amidst midst of distinct episodes. And the entry into Jerusalem is included. And then there is a, fi- a final block of teaching, In the vicinity of Jerusalem, chapter 21, 23, the controversies with opponents, there is teaching to his followers beginning of 23 to 25, and then in 26, the Passion narrative. So we got those five teaching blocks, and this is page 7, a suggested analogical relation between the organization of Matthew and the Old Testament. Now, different people have done different... Things here, and this is rather speculative and you don't take my word for it. Some people have said the five teaching blocks correspond to the five books of Moses, but the content of them really doesn't match the five books of Moses in any special way. So it's just the number five, you see, which would be there. I chose to look at it from the standpoint of Matthew's overarching concern for fulfillment of the Old Testament. Every gospel writer is concerned with the fulfillment of the Old Testament, but Matthew gets more into the details. For Matthew, there's this refrain of, This took place that it might be fulfilled what was said by the prophet so and so, blank, (laughs) fill in the blank, saying, right, and he'll quote explicitly. Can't find that in Luke, although at the end of Luke 24, there is this Maeus meeting where Jesus teaches that the whole Old Testament is fulfilled in him, but But there's not a lot of specifics, specific proof texts the way Matthew has it. So Matthew is really concerned for this details of fulfillment. And it seemed to me, plausible at least, to see a degree of focus in the first action block and teaching block on the fulfillment of the five books of Moses, specifically. Out of Egypt have I called my son. He quotes that, you see. It's the exodus. Recapitulated and then the teaching begins its teaching on the mount beginning with blessings Corresponding to the blessings and cursings of Mount Sinai and Jesus says do you think that I've come to destroy the law? so the issue of the law and he teaches about you know that You've heard it was said you shall not commit murder, but I say to you so there's this interaction with legal material from the Old Testament that is from the five books of Moses uh, chapters 8 to 11, 1, that is 8 through the end of 10, there's a historical or action uh, piece in 9, uh, 8 and 9 and a teaching piece in 10. This seems to me to correspond, analogically speaking, to conquest, that is, its expansion of the kingdom. It's reminiscent of Joshua. Uh, so both the expansion in terms of action of his miracles touching on various spheres of life an expansion in terms of chapter 10, he teaches to, in order to send out his disciples so that they become agents of the kingdom. Uh, the next block seemed to me to correspond more to the material in the uh, Old Testament, uh, you might call the former prophets, kingship issues, the monarchy, because the action is related to Jesus feeding his sheep in terms of, ministry in response to that ministry. And the teaching block is really about true shepherding. It's about caring for fellow disciples in the way that I indicated. So the note of shepherding is there, though not always the word. And then the final block, Roman numeral five here, contains narrative and teaching, both of which are prophetically oriented. That is, they are predictive, sometimes of the fall of Jerusalem, Pronouncement of judgments on the leaders, uh, religious leaders, and uh, various things related to the second coming taught in parables and so on. A lot of material that is very much in a prophetic mode. So, uh, do uh, take that for what you will. I'm saying that may be somewhat of a focus, but of course, it's not. It is not rigid, right? You can see uh, relations of. of um, Promise and fulfillment uh, from all parts of the Old Testament to all parts of Matthew, at least in a broad way. And then the final thing, pages eight and nine, is even more wild. Uh, There is an article by Wolfgang Hammer, The Intention of the Genealogy of Matthew. The article is in French, that suggests that the whole of the Gospel of Matthew is organized pericope by pericope or episode by episode to correspond to the genealogy. Is that so? It's not obvious, since some of the connections are less plausible. And uh, I was skeptical of this until I, I glanced at the article to see what it was doing. And then I said, well, you know, I'll see whether I could figure this out independent of him and then compare the results. And if there's no relation between them, then we're probably both way off and if it comes out exactly the same, then probably there's something to it. Well, it did come out the same, at least to the degree he didn't go all the way through to show exactly what he thought, but the degree in which he expounded it. So uh, but <laughs> it's wild because it's it's rather some some of the connections are rather, distant kind of things because they build on the names in the genealogy and each name then corresponds to a distinct episode in Matthew. Do you really believe this? Even as I'm saying it and I'm looking out there and I thought if I were you, I wouldn't believe it (laughs) because it sounds crazy. But it seemed to work. (laughs) What is the significance of this? Even if you don't buy it, the genealogy is certainly significant in terms of the Matthew's theme of fulfillment, right, and particularly of Jesus as the Messiah. He takes the genealogy through the kingly line, the list of the kings of Judah, and, you know, for an Israelite, this is well-known territory, and just going over that and thinking of how it leads up to Christ. But in addition, Matthew does some strange things with the genealogy. There are names that are omitted, as you can see, by comparing with the Old Testament list of the kings of Judah. There are names that are omitted. And at the end, Matthew says, well, there are 14 generations from Abraham to David and 14 from David to the exile and 14 from the exile to, um, to the coming of the Christ. Well, there aren't literally 14 generations with no gaps. So what's Matthew doing? I mean, he's not pulling the wool over anybody's eyes because he is writing, I think, to a Jewish or a Jewish Christian audience and he expects people to know the, something of the genealogies. So he's not making a mistake. He's not, you know, but he's doing something a little funny from the standpoint of modern readers who expect, you know, that that you won't do that, right? You'll give a complete list, or at least you won't add something up that isn't a list with. But it turns out that the name David, which is obviously a key name in the genealogy because of its relationship to kingship, you add up the value of the letters, and it comes to 14. And 14 is twice seven, which is number of completeness. And you think he, you know, he's saying something about you've got to look at history a certain way. And the mentality, I think, of Matthew, then, is not only I'm going to tell you the story as it happened, because I don't agree. We talked about Gundry, remember. I don't agree that he's inventing anything. And it's important, and R.T. France responded to Gundry and said, Matthew's theology of fulfillment is so significant, a part of the thing, but you can't have a fulfillment with unreal events. <laughs> right? the thing, it's part of the theology of fulfillment that the thing really has to have happened. So it really makes no sense, theologically even, for Matthew to have invented events. But, it's diff- but what Matthew is then is taking real events, but he's also saying, look, I'm going to highlight certain things. I'm going to be selective. I'm going to alert you to the fact that there are these subtle connections. And in the beginning of the genealogies, there are some peculiarities. If you look at it, uh, this is a little off the subject, but I mean, I get going on this because I think Matthew is just a fascinating gospel for some of the subtle things that he does as well as, and there's plenty that's obvious, but look at this genealogy a record of the genealogy I'm in Matthew 1 a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David the son of Abraham well he's not the son of David he's the great 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 grandson right although the word son in Hebrew can be used of you know more distant descendants that's already a genealogy with two ancestors then he gives you a second genealogy go on the other way well you see he's singled out already Abraham father of the Jews David father of the kingly line you see he's making some points already theologically by his selectivity now he's got the the fuller genealogy although still with some omissions is it abraham was the father of isaac isaac jacob, jacob the father of judah and his brothers judah the father of perez and Zerah, whose mother was tamar <laughs> now what's tamar doing in there right tamar is the woman who married what is it? Ur and Onan, right? They both died, remember that, right? And then she set it up, and Judah, thinking she was a prostitute, I mean, it's a rather um, uh, embarrassing incident. <laughs> and there, you know, that's not what you put into a genealogy. Well, he's, he's nevertheless there. And so then it goes on some more. Obed, the father of Jesse, I'm down at verse, uh, uh, well, no, before that, 5. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, the prostitute, <laughs> the Gentile, the Canaanite. And verse 6, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, <laughs> Uriah the Hittite. we got all this, this embarrassing <laughs> aspect of the genealogies. Three people, I believe Tamar was of Gentile origin, too. Three people, all of which come out of these Gentile origins. And the point of this, I think, is he's already making a point that he's going to make later on, that this is Jesus is the Messiah of the Jews, but the Jews rejected him largely, right? And so Matthew alone says that the kingdom of God is going to be taken away from you and given to a nation that bears fruit from it. Uh, and part of the issue in Matthew, because he's thinking of Jews reading it, is if Jesus is the Messiah, well, you know, why, why didn't the Jews accept him, you see? And this goes through Matthew, but he's got a little bit of preparation for that. Very subtle. You could easily miss it, but, but sort of sticking it to people of, well, remember <laughs> that the inclusion of the Gentiles is not a new idea in the end. And then, verse 7, Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, the NIV says, smoothing everything out. Because if you look at your Greek text, it says Asaph. And of course, there's a text-critical problem. There's a variant, text-critically, Asa. Now, which do you think is more likely the scribe did? Well, Asaph is original in my book. Partly because the scribe is going to change it to Asa because everybody knows Asa was the king of Israel and everybody knows Asaph was the Le- Levite who was in charge of the singers. He's a Levite, right? For the tribe of Levi, he's not the tribe of Judah. So this is obviously an error. Or is it? <laughs> I don't think it's so. <laughs> I think Matthew deliberately spelled Asa in a non standard way knowing that people would know that he's talking literally about asa the son of abijah but he spells it in such a way that you'll also think of asa the singer the levitical singer thereby and this is my theory you can take it or leave it thereby indicating subtly that jesus is not only literally the heir to the davidic throne but symbolically the heir to the priestly line as well. If you think that's wild, you go on a little while to verse 10, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amon, which the NIV dutifully smooths out because it doesn't want its readers to be troubled by the reality which is that the spelling in Greek is Amos. And once again, there's a text-critical problem because the scribes corrected it back to Amon. Well, once again, Matthew is not going to deceive anybody. It is Amon who is the son of an That Everybody knows that. At the same time, by spelling it this way, he subtly indicates that Jesus is heir to the prophetic line, Amos the prophet. Well, <laughs> I can't prove that that's what he's doing. I suspect that that's what he's doing. He's putting in subtleties, not deviating from the literal truth, right? Because Asa is still there. Everybody understands that. But he's saying, I'm going to put in little bits, (laughs) suggestive bits for the discerning reader. That's how it starts. If that's how it starts, it may be that Matthew is capable of doing what Wolfgang Hammer thinks he did, (laughs) by using this genealogy also as a sort of framework for for the later episode. Anyway, just to tantalize you, but there's no doubt in my mind that Matthew is both straightforward in terms of he's telling you what really happened and he is subtle. And you know, people. There's a number of, of these fulfillment quotations that people get driven up to the wall by because they don't seem to be proper fulfillments. You know, and people argue about that. Out of Egypt, I call my son, is that really a messianic text? Well, it takes some thought. I do. I think Matthew is doing something legitimate and profound, but it takes some thought to get at what he's doing. So, in effect, I'm opening this up. You know, if you do something on Matthew. Be, be aware that there may be subtleties in addition to, you know, the, the stuff that will be on the surface that will be obvious. Um, I don't think so, because David is such an important name that it's bound to have sort of been in the consciousness of Jews. But you're right, you have to take that into account, that it's somewhat less obvious and, also, well, the other thing that occurs to me is some people have argued that there was a Hebrew edition of the Gospel of Matthew, right, and Papias uh, uh, says something that may indicate that. I don't think that's the way to go. <laughs> um, but I think it's 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 possible, even though this is Hebrew, that Matthew is still alluding to it, because it's a Greek, gospel written in Greek, but to people who... Uh, some of whom have this Jewish background. Now I know we uh, we reached our halfway point. Let me say a bit about the Gospel of John, and we can take our break. And that God was, uh, yeah. Hmm. That the trouble is, how do you control that? Right? How do you even control what Matthew thought he was doing? Much less what God was doing. And my my resource generally tends to be well. Uh, many things can have a subtle impact on readers, even if they're not consciously aware of them, like this thing of plot. I do think we instinctively react to that. But this thing about building the episodes on the names and the genealogies, that's, <laughs> that's not going to have an effect unless you, know, you deliberately go after it. right? So that's what makes it, I think, so iffy that people would wonder, you know, can this really be? This is strange kind of thing. Um, Well, anyway, the Gospel of John. Tended out long there, the prologue, many people recognize it as a distinct introduction to the whole of the Gospel. And then uh, there is the public ministry uh, through Chapter 12, ending up with, again, a general statement to the effect that uh, despite all these signs, people did not believe in them. So there's a looking back on that whole section. And then the Upper Room Discourse, uh, chapters 13 to 17, and the Passion Narrative. That's part of the material is uh, at least fairly broadly recognized that that's a major structure for um, John. It's a little harder to break up the material in in a uh, sensitive way within the public ministry. So uh, there I struggled some, and I saw this sort of going from Cana to Cana, uh, from Cana and Galilee back to Cana and in Galilee in, the, in chapters 2 to 4. I used that. Other people have remarked on that. And then chapters 5 to 10, basically seeing a number of discourses linked with signs. And so that helps to fit together those uh, parts of John. But you can take a look at that. Roman numeral E, Systematic Theological Concerns, Problem of Time, History, and Theology. Well, that sounds pretty uh, pretty high-level generality, but um, bear with me, because I think it's worth refle- reflecting on, uh, even at the level of where you'll be looking at a specific episode That you want to have a framework for understanding the relationship between history and theology. So so, uh, let me go into this. Point one the importance of the history of salvation. A, God governs history from creation to consummation, we know from broad teaching of Scripture. B, the acts of God and the covenantal speech of God are correlative within this purposeful framework. God speaks. Right? Let there be light. And there was light. So there's an an act of power. And there's also actually evaluative word he calls the light day and the darkness night. So the words of God, then, are not to be isolated or seen as an end in themselves, but in organic relationship with the acts of redemption. And likewise, the acts of redemption are promised by words and interpreted by words. We talked about this... A little before it and we last week I hope so so point uh, C under this one is that there is a redemptive historical unity of scripture as a whole but also of scripture with the events which it reports and interprets scripture deals with an unfolding an organic historical process which means that we preach and we listen to specific episodes with a sense of their historical uniqueness, number one, that is, that it isn't simply something that we, we pull out of history and say, well, this is some general religious principle which then I can apply, you see. Uh, Christianity is not a religious philosophy. Uh, Islam, even though it's dependent on Christianity in certain um, very different ways, Basically, when you get to what Mohammed is doing, it's a religious philosophy. There's no history to it, basically, except that God sent him as a prophet. It doesn't go anywhere, but it's a sort of thing for all times and places, supposedly. Uh, and similarly, Confucius is basically a system of ethics. No history, no events, right? But Christianity is, is the announcement of accomplishment once for all in history, right? So. The point, then, is that we're dealing with something that is rooted in actual events in time and space. Point two, then, is what is accuracy in historical reporting and the problem of history in that respect. So uh, point A under this is that the Gospels do exhibit an overall Chronology and a broad framework, which is roughly chronological. That is, every uh, every one of the four Gospels contains a record of the baptism of Jesus by John, of the uh, ministry, public ministry of the cross and the resurrection, in that order. So the sort of the basic uh, structure of Jesus' life is there in terms of a Uh, A very rough chronology. But, point two, under this chronology, the details are in different order at times. And we looked at a couple of instances, one or two instances, but you can, you know, there are many more. And three, there are differences in selectivity uh, concerning incidents that are related by more than one gospel. And four, then already this creates a certain tension for certain people I think it creates tension mainly with a, what I would call a positivistic view of historical truth. The positivistic view of historical truth is that the historian's job is like the old dragnet movies. Uh, I'm probably dating myself, but they had this hero Friday, and he'd interview—he's a policeman—he'd interview these people. Uh, And sometimes it was these hysterical women and and people who are all emotionally worked up, and he said, just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. All right, so this is the positivistic view of history. Just the facts. Don't interpret, you know, don't emote about it. Just give me the basic stuff. Well, all right, the extreme form of this in in historical positivism was this idea of an absolute objectivity, you see, where there's no interpretation but just one fact after another. If that's what you expect, if that's what is the, you know, the heyday of positivism in, in the 19th century uh, expected, and one comes to the scriptures, one will be disappointed, but the problem is not with the scriptures, of course, but with this view. Uh, because, why? Because the evangelists, the writers, the human writers' concerns, and ultimately the divine writer as well, their concern is not with the facts as bare facts, as if you could have such a thing, and Antel, I hope, is taught... Us, you know, that there are no uninterpreted facts; that are interpreted first by God, but inevitably, when a human being goes to them, it's against the background of some framework, even if it's a positivistic framework. That's one framework among many, right? So, inevitably, there is a concern to understand and understand within the framework. So, point B is concerning history and theology. First, the. Uh, The gospel and the gospel's plural are confessions of faith in a way, right? They are written from the standpoint of faith, they are written to engender and enhance faith. Thus, point two, there is no interest in, quote, objective, unquote, history in the sense that the positivistic philosophy would like it to be. That is, they're not just writing to write, they're writing for a purpose, which is driven by uh, the fact they already have faith in this Christ whom they have, um, whose life they've looked into. Third, Luke's concern shows interest in the careful use of sources, right? He discusses the fact that other people have written. He discusses eyewitnesses in a way. And by the way, Polybius, who was writing a little before Luke, a Greek historian, was not naive. Some of the Greeks knew all about the problems of secondhand testimony and hearsay. They, they tried to get at the facts. So, you know, sometimes the whole greco roman as well as Jewish world, is pictured by Bol- extreme Boltmanians as a sort of mythological, right? Well, it's true that religion was deeply involved in life. It's true that there were some very credulous people, as there are today. So what? Right, There were also people like Polybius who knew their stuff <laughs> and who was you know, sort of a model of very accurate history writing because of that. But people wrote not only to be accurate, but wrote with purposes that were edifying, you see. So Luke shows the same concern for accuracy. It is intended to be history, as we've already observed from the prologue. The other synoptics are clearly in the same genre, broadly speaking, Therefore, they are records of actual events, but selected and interpreted with a view to human need, right? To a view to faith. So you can have your cake and eat it, right? And and you know this may seem obvious to you, and probably should be obvious to you, but it isn't obvious to a good many people who've written about this problem, right? Who tend to polarize either history. Or if you can show that there are theological interests on the part of the gospel writings, and therefore, right, so much the worse for their historical accuracy. Well, those, that's a false polarity. And, but the point then of this is, uh, the, on the one side, uh, we're not dealing with uh, uh, pious fiction and invention and so on. But on the other side, we're dealing with real events. But on the other side, uh, the fact that there is theological interest ought not to be suppressed. Which means that we also, in our reading, can be looking for this kind of thing, as I did with Matthew, although you may feel you know, some of the very speculative things are stretching. But be that as it may, you start with something and you say, well, you know, what is Matthew trying to do? He, he had this genealogy, right? So he just wrote it down. Well, Mark didn't write a genealogy, so why did Matthew? Even supposing he had the genealogy, he didn't have to include it. So what is he saying? Well, he's, you see, that, that kind of thing leads you into Uh, looking for the significance in why an author includes and omits what he does. Okay, so that means then that in effect the Gospels require a biblical theological approach where we're concerned both for the realities of history and the events and we're concerned for the way in which these are presented within from a uh, theological point of view as significant. And you see again, well... Van Til is a help because, basically, Van Til is saying all events whatsoever, the the complete created order, is pre-interpreted by God, right? So human beings are not doing anything absolutely new in their interpretation, either scientifically, right, or historically. But it also means when you find something like the Gospels that is interpreting the events, then you resist the temptation to go behind the interpretation to get just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. Why? Because there's no such thing as just the facts, right? The material is pre-interpretation. What the Gospels are doing is not adding something, not inventing something. Their interpretation is not an invention, in other words, right, which they impose on facts which, in fact, are bare. But rather, they are drawing out what's already there, you see, In terms of the significance so we don't add significance that is if the interpretation is done right and there your your view of inspiration will come in to to say this is God's own post interpretation of what he's already pre-interpreted in his own counsel well yeah there's different those are not incompatible of course but there's different ways Luke places it universal because he's interested in the spread of the gospel to the Roman world And so they've got this complicated dating, you know, on the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar and Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea. So he's got all this reference to the larger Roman world where Matthew is more Jewish, you know, specifically, right? So it helps the flavor of it. So I think you're right that some things, at least, you can see why there is a selectivity. Although from a human author point of view, you've got to be careful because you say, well, maybe Matthew had access to certain facts that Luke didn't have and vice versa. But then, at a divine author point of view, we say, well, because God so ordained it, right? So, it's, there. but there remains some uncertainties as to, at least to human authors, as to, well, you know, how much was it a matter they included these things because they didn't have all the information that we have from all the other Gospels and how much because uh, they deliberately selected from a larger pool. Okay, well, point three then, we'll talk about uh, the uh, diachronic analysis, although before we get to to there, the point is, one more time through, historical critical tradition has gotten incredibly hung up by, I think, the influence of positivistic thinking so that it just got off on the wrong foot for more than one reason, I mean, some of which are spiritually which I say nefarious reasons, but, but it got off on the wrong foot in terms of saying if there's theology, it can't be history, right? Either it's just faked history or at best, it's real history of theology tacked on, pasted on, you see. As an artificial thing, this is Luke, but it really can't be the significance of the events as they originally happened because, of course, they didn't have any significance, Right? The significance has to be added. And you see, that, that will get, get people into impossible tangles so that they cannot extricate themselves with, from. And the solution is basically to say, you've got to have a biblical worldview. <laughs> That's the problem. <laughs> right. You've got to say, God gives significance to the events of history so that you're not creating them out of nothing when you interpret. Okay. Diachronic analysis. Um, some of you have uh, know a little bit about this from the news course if you took it with me but the idea is that uh, uh, the linguists distinguish synchronic and diachronic analysis synchronic analysis means here's a timeline all right synchronic analysis means cutting through a cross-section and saying what is the structure of things at a particular moment in time okay and diachronic through time, dia. I was going kind to of write in Greek, right? Because that's what it is. Uh, diachronic means comparing several moments, at least two. All right. That's the general distinction. Though I think it will not hold up as an absolutely clean, infinitely sharp distinction. Why not? Because the diachronic analysis must in order to make sense, compare two things, both of which exist, right, synchronically, right? And a synchronic analysis, to, 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 to get meaning, meaning has to be within the world where time is moving along. So you can't just isolate a moment and freeze the action, right? Like the still, you know, the way the VCR, you take a still shot and you can't tell what's going on. Often. So you've got to have, in effect, a sense of, The purposes of God in history, uh, when you're doing synchronic analysis, so it is, uh, but it's still a convenient description, uh, is a a convenient distinction, at a rough and ready level, as you will see, I hope, because diachronic analysis is concerned (laughs) with (coughs) sources and with transmission. So now, with respect to the Gospels. What does this look like? B, principles with respect to the Gospels. We are encouraged by the Gospels, in fact, to do a certain amount of limited diachronic reflection. How is that? Because there are several times that the Gospels are talking about. If I may draw another timeline here, we're talking about an Old Testament period, and we're talking about the coming of the kingdom with the public ministry of Jesus preeminently, and we've got the time of Jesus' ministry here, okay, leading up to the crucifixion and resurrection. And then we've got the time of the church out here. And I'm going to say a bit about how the evangelists uh, uh, take notice indirectly of this period without collapsing it with the period of Jesus' ministry and then of course heading out in certain prophetic utterances of Jesus already anticipating the second coming. So we are th- invited to think of the kingdom of God is already present here and not yet in a sense, but then also then present in the ministry of the church. We're looking at growth even during pre- uh, Jesus public ministry, we're looking at going forward to Jesus suffering, we're looking at coming going forward to Jesus coming in power. And, of course, we're looking for Luke in particular. We're looking at church time because Luke writes Luke and Acts. So he's inviting us also to looking back from, as it were, the standpoint of the church at what has happened. Now, let me give you an example of how this makes a difference. Uh, Luke 5, 12 to 16, what is becoming the famous episode of the healing of the leper in Luke, There is a focus on a physical sign of healing. And that, I would claim, is more so in the Gospel of Luke than in Acts. Now, there are some physical healings in Acts. And some people have speculated even some tendency to line up Peter and Paul with Jesus, but particularly Paul, that some of the miracles they do are reminiscent of uh, the miracles of Jesus. But there is less focus on physical signs. And uh, when Jesus touches the leper, touching a leper would, in terms of the Old Testament uh, theology of uncleanness, make you yourself unclean. And I think it's not that Jesus literally became unclean, but that he is identifying with a leper in his messianic role as substitute, basically. So he's saying, just as a leper is healed from his... Ceremonial and uncleanness by my touch so as it were by my spiritual touch and identification with the uncleanness of sin the um, you know the believer will be healed of that now what we're dealing with you see then Is an aspect of Jesus public ministry where the the uh, physical sign points to the significance? spiritually of the crucifixion and of the resurrection now, what does this do in terms of our reckoning with applications? Sometimes, oh, and the other thing is that the gospel writer stands here with us, Luke or, you know, any of it, for looking back at this ministry from the standpoint of knowing himself where the story's going and therefore interpreting it in light of where it's going now. At times, there may be direct mentions by the narrator, by the evangelist, of applications. I already mentioned the one in Luke 18.1. Jesus told a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart, right? So here's Luke speaking to a post-resurrection audience. You see, we've got two times, right? We've got the time of Luke speaking, the time of Jesus speaking, right? And Luke is linking them by means of this statement. Of application also there is emphasis on some themes of course which Luke may see as relevant to the church that is already an interpretation of events but fortunately for us it is inspired and definitive right so we do not need to reconstruct our own version in order to come up with our own more accurate account or whatever okay well let me put it this way Point C, an example from Luke, how do you integrate the historical once for all and the theological implications, right? One way of doing it is that the kingdom of God is to say, the kingdom of God is a major theme of Luke, and in fact, in all four Gospels. The kingdom of God is to be understood in terms of the king. God the Father as king, surely, and several uh, passages in the Gospels indicate this, but also Christ as king. Uh, Luke 1, actually, and here's again, Luke's literary structure enables the reader to see this before most of the actors on the scene do. Luke 1, 32, the announcement to Mary, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Well, the... The reader knows that at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, that most of the people, including the disciples, don't know that. Right during the course of the story, so Luke already indicates a little bit of the significance of things, which the people involved in the story, the people who are still back here before the crucifixion and the resurrection, most of them don't. And Mary did, but she kept all these things pondering them in her heart. She didn't spread it all around. So, that's part of it, and there is the mystery, then, of Christ being the king, but not not according to the expectations that some people expected the Messiah to be, to be a conqueror, to be thrown out the Romans, and not being known to be king, even at the beginning by some of his disciples, right? They, They go in and out as to how much they are appreciated. The point is that this mystery of who Jesus is is not, it is a mystery to Jesus' first hearers, but is less so a mystery to Luke, who is telling you from a post-resurrection standpoint what it looks like. So the thing has become more, it has come more out into the open for Luke than for the original readers. And Luke gives you help uh, in the first chapter, particularly with these prophetic materials, which some of which were public, but which were you know lost sight of and forgotten by many of the people who heard them before you know 30 years later, then Jesus comes on the scene, right? You haven't got that material, but Luke brings it all together for you, you see. So that all leads to the question how much do we preach from Luke, and how much from Jesus behind Luke? That's the troubling thing because you can see. And, and in effect, it ought not to be a polarity in some ways because Luke invites us to see what things were really like back here. But at the same time, he's saying it wasn't all clear to the people back here, to all of them, right? So you have got, you've got at least a, a sort of um, uh, a three-dimensional vision, right? You've got to use two eyes or two moments in time to take this in, although I think they are compatible put it this way, in terms of reflecting on God's word. God's words, spoken at one time, public ministry of Jesus, have a multitude of implications for a later time, by God's own purpose, right? This is sovereignty over history. Hence, it is legitimate for a gospel writer, Luke, to draw out these implications by commenting on these words by perhaps from time to time in translation, because most of it would be translation, rephrasing them with substantively saying the same thing, and even embedding them in a new context. Now that I think we have to be careful with, because if the gospel gospel writer is not saying that our age of the church is the same as the age of Jesus' public ministry, and people have claimed that sort of a lot of things were pushed back on into Jesus' mouth that were really church things. They've claimed that. Whereas I've claimed Luke is really interested in what happened. But he is also interested, the point is, in our seeing the significance of what happened, right? And the Gospel of John, this becomes, uh, which I say, becomes more of an issue because what Jesus says in his discourses sounds a lot like what John says with his own voice in terms of the style of the Greek. What does that mean? Does that mean, you see, that then John is not accurately saying what Jesus said? No, but it means that he's interpreting from the standpoint of the post-resurrection. He's drawing out the significance of what Jesus said. So, and then the question is, you know, what are the exact boundaries there? Well. I think, you know, we've got to leave that to the gospel writers and to God and his providence deciding. But the point is uh, that, that what Jesus says has implications, you see. And those implications may be drawn out at times. And, in fact, one might argue that it's almost a necessity to draw the significance out in order to avoid misrepresenting a story when you use evidence selectively you know Jesus if he had a ministry even of one and a half years or three years is the or three and a half years is the more usual time that's given but even if it were shorter than that that is a lot of teaching a lot of miracles and you better be glad that we don't have it all written down because it would fill volumes you know it would overwhelm us with a sheer quantity to the point that we it would be hard to find our way through almost you see so it's not—it's good. It's a good thing in its own way that we have got something, provided it's inspired, right? Provided it's reliable, that, that captures the significance of this thing within a smaller compass that is readable in one setting even, you see. Okay. So, so much for the example from Luke. And now, de-Christocentricity in interpretation. I want to say a word about that. Well, that means... Of course, Christ is central to the gospel, that's easy, but also Christ's death and resurrection, climactic events. Think about how the events lead up to that. And E, variations in history writing. Now this gets a little um, delicate too, and I want to uh, be uh, sensitive here. The gospel writers are doing the same thing, all four of them, right? The same genre telling the story of Jesus' ministry in its theological significance. So it would be easy to exaggerate, and in fact, this world of scholarship, which has gotten into a mold of looking at all the distinctions and all the, the variations and even tensions that they think are even contradictions that some scholars will find, They're interested in all these distinctions, and sometimes I think have gone overboard. There's a lot that's common to the four Gospels, and we should expect that, right? Given that there is such a thing as Orthodoxy, (laughs) right? And given that there is such a thing as, as Jesus' ministry, which has a definite shape in history.